Well, good morning. Uh, the faithfulness of God, huh, that he gives us seasons. Just imagine if it was winter, 365. <laughs> Although, actually, I like the long winters and short springs because I like inclement weather and all the kind of stuff, storms and gales and everything else. So I know if there were oranges and apples, you'd probably start throwing them in my direction right now. But <laughs> the weather we had the last couple of weeks was glorious. <laughs> so... The long-range forecast is 240 days, or sorry, 240 hours of dry weather is in the long-range forecast for those of you who like the dry weather. If you would, please turn your Bible to the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. So if you find your way to Matthew, you're just going to go a few pages before that. And by the way, Adel, today is an in-and-out day, just so you know. Today's an in-and-out day. I understand <laughs> Yes, my parents, is today an in and out day? And I said, yes, it is. I want to talk this morning uh, for the few minutes we have together about reigniting intimacy with God. And what we'll do is, matter of fact, this may be the first time in all my years that I've spoken here, but I think I wanted to cover a number of things, but just couldn't. The time doesn't allow, and I want to really hone in on one point. So I think when I come back in March, Lord willing, I'm going to do a part two on this. So uh, what your homework assignment is, is between now and March 10th when I come back, is to read the four chapters in the book of Malachi. Now, you should be able to do that, because I believe there are 55 verses in this book. So a matter of fact, you should be able to read it a couple of times through. And when I come back in March, you'll be all the more familiar with what I'm going to be covering. But let's just start in verse 1 to 5 today. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And Milton will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. And then just uh, two verses in chapter three. Verses 6 and 7. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earners and his wages. And the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you... O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. In the key verse, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. If you were asked to compare your love for the Lord Jesus Christ now with the love that you had for him, when you were first saved, what I mean by that is 
when you first came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's what it means to be saved, to be delivered, to be rescued. And if you were to think of when that day, that evening occurred, how would you compare your love now for what it was then when you were first saved? How is it today compared to that day? For some of you, that may be weeks ago, months ago, years ago. What would you say? What would your honest answer be? And you don't need to shout it out. This is between you and God. Would you say more? My love for God is is greater now as I've understood more and more and more what he has accomplished on the cross and who he is. Maybe you'd say, well, it's about the same, to be honest. Or maybe you might say, over the last several months or years, there is now less true heart affection than there was at one time. I've been speaking to a, a young man over the last few months who approached me and said, I'd like to have you meet with me. Because one of the re- issues that he's been dealing with is that in his Christian life, he is aware of the fact that he's become indifferent. That faith, if you like, has lost its edge. That the enthusiasm which followed his conversion a number of years ago has gradually cooled. The temperature is on the decline. And he's aware of the fact that distance is, is creeping in. And he would say it in effect that it seems like he's losing touch, if you like, with the, with the living God. And there's some kind of a blockage there. You think of it in the, in the analogy of the heart, and you think of, you know, it's really important to have those arteries clear, to keep the blood flowing. And obviously, one of the hidden killers is the fact is that when there are clogged arteries, and a lot of times we don't really know them, we don't really realize that they're clogged, and then that's what brings on the risk of a heart attack. In a sense, spiritually speaking, what can happen to our heart is sometimes it's like it's getting clogged. And we want to figure out, and what we're going to figure out over the next couple of times that I'm together, Lord willing, is what is it that clogs those arteries spiritually, that causes the, uh, some kind of a blockage in our sense of intimacy with God. And you know, the re- truth of the matter is, is this fellow, this uh, guy that I've been seeing, he's not alone. He really isn't alone. Many, many others, including myself, have had periods of time when I've sensed a distance. And Malachi addresses this issue as to what might be going on. And so as he started to share this with me, I thought, I wonder what I should share. What, what is the answer? And so over the last few months, I've been reading through the book of Malachi. And so you are the recipients of that today. Because this is exactly what was going on with the Israelites. This is what many of us at times have experienced in our Christian life. How do we, how do we rekindle intimacy with God? Well, just a quick backdrop on this book. You do your own research and homework since you know where we're going to be going next time. But it's the last prophet in the Old Testament that's recorded. And the interesting thing is, is there won't be another prophet for another four centuries before John the Baptist comes on the scene. After this, there's going to be 400 years of silence where there's not another messenger coming on the scene. And the interesting thing is, is that Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah had been basically saying the same thing to the Israelites. And God says, you know, I'm such a pursuer of you. I want to know you and I want to have intimacy with you and you intimacy with me that I'm going to give another shot at it 
and give you Malachi now, who's going to speak to you. And really the word Malachi simply means this, my messenger. And interestingly enough, as you read it, that 47 times out of the 55 verses in this little book of four chapters, God is mentioned in the first person. 47 times God is speaking through Malachi, and it's as though he is speaking, and he, but he is speaking through this man who has a message from God. You see, the Jews were God's special nation in the Old Testament. And he had chosen them, and he made them, as we are familiar with, going back to Abraham, a covenant. He said, I want to be someone who's going to bless you as a nation so that you will be a blessing to other nations. And if you're familiar with any of the Old Testament, God said this. He said, you know, I promise to bless you, nation of Israel. I I promise to bless you if you are obedient to me and you follow me. However, if you've read a couple of chapters of the Old Testament, you're probably familiar with the fact that God kept his end of the bargain, but the Israelites didn't. And they were constantly turning to materialism and idolatry. And they were like... Isaiah 53, 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. And the Israelites were constantly just going astray, not following what God had for them. So during the 6th century, a little history lesson here, before Christ, because of their sin and their stubbornness and their rebellion, God allowed them to be invaded by the Babylonians. And they were overcome. And Jerusalem and this wonderful, magnificent temple for worship was destroyed. And the people went into exile in Babylon for 70 years. And what was the reason that God did that? Was he just trying to be cruel? Was he just trying to be vindictive, harsh? No, not at all. It was to humble them and cause them to return to the Lord with all their hearts. But now we come to Malachi and the situation, if we fast forward it to when Malachi started to address the Israelites, is they're in Jerusalem. And now it's about 450 B.C. About 80 years prior to that, historians say and commentators tell us that the Jews had returned from captivity. And about 50 years ago, a new temple had been built. And it wasn't as great as the original one. And life, if you like, for the Israelites at this time was uneventful. Things were basically good. Nobody was making a lot of money. There wasn't a lot of wealth. But people were getting by. There was no... Wars on the horizon. But there was this man, Malachi, who wasn't happy with the status quo. He wasn't happy with something that was going on. And so when you come to verse 1, it says the oracle of the word of the Lord. And what in the world is the word oracle? We probably think of the company, the computer company, when you read oracle. But what it means in the Hebrew is simply this. It means burden. To bear a burden. And this messenger of God, Malachi, is burdened about something. He's got a message from God, and he's deeply, deeply concerned about their spiritual decline. I want you to understand, it's not the decline that's like this, where we have this wonderful intimacy with God, and then the next day, like the market's been the last few months, it seems, it just goes, it's more gradual. Sometimes it's much harder to, to notice or to kind of identify or put your finger on, because it's a slow but sure, steady decline. And that was what was happening. When you think about it today, what are you burdened about? God tells us to cast all of our burdens on him because he he cares for us. He says, unleash those on me. 
But I will ask you, and there's a number of things that we're concerned about, and understandably so, but in a sense, do we have any real concern for how we're doing spiritually? Is this something that's on our heart? It's on the radar that we're saying, you know, I don't want the status quo. I don't want to just be in the same kind of growth and knowledge and walk with God that I've been with for the last two or three or four years. I, I want it to grow. I want this relationship to grow like any husband or wife or any couple that are parent-child. You, you, you want it to progress and not just to have it be stale and like where it's stagnant. And Malachi is detected, and God has obviously put this heart and this word on Malachi is to say, I want you to address this issue. And he, as I have alluded to, has uh, want to address an issue that has plagued believers in 2008, just like it did to the Israelites here. And it's an area where we're vulnerable. And it's this. We begin with great gusto. We go out the, the chute like a bull. Just, you know, have you ever been to a rodeo and you see that bull just moving all over the place? And we're all this gusto and fanfare and we're all excited and God is real and the Spirit of God is working and moving. But then something happens and we start to slow down. And it's not just physical age of why we're slowing down. The Jews had returned from Babylon. They were excited. They had rebuilt the temple. But that had been a while ago. And now things are starting to slow down. The enthusiasm for worship, as we'll look at in particular in March, has slowed down. Matter of fact, what really seems acceptable to God, and we'll see this in chapter 1 in March, is that really what's good enough for God is I'll just worship him diseased animals. I'll give him the sick and I'll give him the lame, and that'll be good enough for God. When God says, that's a sin, that's evil in my sight. I don't want that. I want the best from you, not the leftovers. And we'll be looking at that, how if you were to they use the analogy of a governor, and it's like and if you had a bunch of, you wanted the governor to come over the the ruler, and you said, hey, I've got some food I want to serve you. And he says, wonderful, great. And you open up, he opens up the lid, and it's leftovers of some stale piece of lamb that has maggots on it and mold. And basically, that's kind of what they were doing in their worship and service for God. He said, I'm not happy about it. It was apathy. Disillusionment was setting in. If we were to relate to it to our day, we'd probably say, truth be told, spiritual, or should I say, personal devotions, spending time with God, communicating with Him like we talk to someone else, reading His Word with a hunger saying, God, what do you want to say to me today? I want a fresh manna from you this morning or tonight, whenever it is that you read and you meditate, it's on the decline we were honest. And other things, even good things, are kind of coming in and crowding over the best. And that's what was happening. And one of the symptoms of what occurred first is what Malachi addresses in verse 2. <clears throat> Excuse me. He says, God speaking, says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? One of the big problems here is, is they had forgotten and this is the first point, the amazing love of God for them. And that's why it was such an offense, if you like, to God. Because this formal, lifeless, careless approach that they were bringing to God, and you see that as you read the four chapters, because it was set in the context of a God who loved them. And yet this is how they were responding to his love. I have loved you. 
They were a privileged people, more so than any other nation. You think about that. Maybe you can think of times in your life, especially as a child, when you have an increased sense of guilt for doing something against your parents because it's been in the context that you know that you have a mom and a dad who love you. And when you do something wrong against someone who loves you, it can penetrate more deeply often than if it was just a stranger that you sinned against. There's a poem where a, man, a young man said, I did a bad thing once. I took this money from my mother's purse for bubblegum. What made it worse, she bought me some for being good. Well, I'd been vice versa, so to speak. That made it worser. And it really is like that. The Israelites' behavior in light in the context of God's love made it worser. If that's a word in English, I don't think so. It made it more worse. Someone has said the Christian message of the love of God is the most dynamic and soul-satisfying message on earth, yet very often it is not given a second thought. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it, to be loved by another human being? But how much greater is it to be loved by God here today? I don't know if you're one of these folks today, I hope you're not, who really the love of God just doesn't really mean that much. I hope that when you think about the fact that God loves you, if you're his child, he loves you with an everlasting love, that that just causes this heart of yours to start getting excited about it and beating for him. God said of his people, and it's certainly true in application to us in the book of Zephaniah, another little Old Testament book, a minor prophet. He said, you are the one over whom the Lord takes great delight. You are the one over whom the Lord rejoices with singing like a young father over his firstborn babe. That's how God views you and I today. He rejoices over us with singing when we know him. This is how his heart beats for you and I here today. I was talking to a woman a couple weeks ago and after one of our Bible studies in our church and she said, I just feel so unworthy. I just feel so unworthy of the love of God. And she began to cry. And I said, you know what? We love him because he first loved us. We're not, we're not worthy and yet he loves us. And he simply wants us to respond to his love. You see, it would be a lot easier, I guess Malachi probably would be saying, to understand if a person became careless and indifferent toward God, if it was the God of, for example, the so-called God, the false God of Islam, who's aloof, distant, impersonal. But this isn't the God of the Bible. The God that we know, the living and true God who made the heavens and the earth. He came from heaven and he loved us. He loved us and like Galatians 2.20 says, he gave himself for us. This is the God that we know. I was up in the mountains a couple of week, days ago, and we were up at, uh, that, on that gondola at the very top of uh, in, near Heavenly Valley. Maybe you've been there before. It's about 9,100 9, is the elevation, 9,200 feet. It was a beautiful day, blue sky. I was hoping for a snowstorm, but that wasn't the way it was going to happen. Blue sky everywhere, and you could look, and you could see the lake, and you could see all the Sierra, and you could look to the right, and you could see into Nevada. And you could just see, you know, you couldn't even hear anything. You're so high up, but you could just see a little bit of traffic down below. And you just think, the God who made all this somehow 
takes an interest in, and he zooms right down onto me, Randy White, and to you, his child. He, he's interested. You know, what is man, as the psalmist said, that you're mindful of him? And yet he is here today. Verse 2, here's the irony though. He says, I've loved you. They thought back on his history. They should have thought back on all the ways that he had shown that. All the ways that he had manifested that to him. But he says, but you say, how have you loved us? Now, I don't know if they verbally said this to God. I suspect not being probably self-righteous, probably wanting to kind of live in the deception that they were in. They probably certainly thought this. This is what they were thinking. You know, I don't really know how you love us. I'm not really sure I'm tuned into that. And there was this denial, if you like. And so what happens is, in this book, is there's these statements that Malachi makes, and then he responds back and says, but you say, because he knows that's what they're thinking, and he addresses it. And on this question, they're questioning his love. They're in denial. And how easy that is to be, isn't it? When we're really not really telling the truth, even to God. I remember my daughter when she was about five years old. She had this habit of she was swallowing gum. And we told her, we said, don't swallow your gum. That's to be chewed. And after telling her that a few times, all of a sudden, we saw her swallow it. And she came up and she was crying and she said, it fell down my throat. You know. Remember that, Laura? <laughs> it fell down my throat. And then in so many ways, we kind of do that. God says a certain truth and we kind of try and rationalize it and backpedal. And we're not really doing guilty, maybe, of what he's saying we're guilty of. And we come up with an excuse the interesting thing is, God says, okay, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to, you know, if we're going to be in the courtroom scene here, for example, I'm going to give you the evidence and show you how I have shown that I have loved you. And he says this, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation. And he goes on to touch on that. Points him back to the history. Really, he says, if you know your history on this, he's saying, you know what? It was undeserved. Matter of fact, if you look at Jacob, he was a swindler, a conniver. He was pulling on Esau's heel. You realize about how he sold his birthright and all that drama, how he lied to his uncle. And he's saying, you know what? I've chosen Jacob, but Jacob's not deserving. And in, in, in actuality, if it was on that, probably Esau's better. But you know what? Jacob was undeserving and I chose him. Had nothing to do with that. And yet you've been privileged. And in the context of choosing Jacob, I have hated Esau in the sense that I made a choice, God said. And it was for Jacob. And I've loved Esau less. I still want to bless Esau if Esau had followed me, but not in the same way that I promised to bless you. And God did that. And interestingly enough, as you read verse 3, as I just did, the repercussions were still having an impact in the area today because of that choice. Areas of agriculture, economic choices, Edom, because they had chosen to be involved in the betrayal of the Israelites, God said, I'm not going to forget that. 
They were happy with their, with all of their um, misfortune that the Israelites were going through, and they betrayed them. And God said, you know what? In the context of this, they're still suffering to this day because of that choice. You and I are the objects of God's loving choice. We are more privileged than any other person on the earth. Do you realize that? Do you believe that? The people of God are not only loved, but were privileged more than any other person or people on the earth. And you and I know that that has absolutely nothing to do with ourselves. There's nothing to do with anything that we look at ourselves and say, that's why, that's why God showed his favor on us. It's because of the way I am. Absolutely not. Nothing could be further from the truth. Think about it. I remember back in 1977 when I was in Placerville and I became a Christian. There was probably about 500 people in this auditorium in Placerville for this music Christian concert. And there was a message afterwards. And you know what? That guy, and I don't even think this group is still around. It was the Act One Company, some probably B-type music group or whatever. They haven't gone on to make it big, but they begin to preach the gospel. They begin to preach the good news of Jesus. And I felt like, you know what? All 499 people were out of that room, but they were speaking directly to me. And the Spirit of God was working in my life and opening up my heart to receive the message. And I don't know what happened to the other 499 folk, but I know that I responded that night at the Spirit's prompting. God was working. Think of some of you here today, and you would probably say if you had time that you would say, you know what, I come from a Christian home. And you think of, you may not know how much time your parents spent in prayer for you. The privilege of being in a Christian home. Sometimes I think our kids might forget the privilege of that. But it is a privilege to have a godly mom and a father who are on their knees entreating the God of heaven to save their son or their daughter. And that is something that where we're privileged because their parents prayed. You and I have a hope today and a God that we can turn to no matter what's going on in our lives. While those who do not know God and who are living, if you like, in the wicked land or in that desert, in that barren place, know nothing of that kind of joy, that kind of peace that we have in knowing him. And you and I know, don't we, that before we knew Jesus Christ, the world is barren and there isn't joy. I was talking to someone recently who said, you know what, I really wasn't happy until I became a Christian. I mean, I, I had kind of experienced a number of things in life, but I didn't have joy. There was still discontent. If we're Christians today, we are experiencing a joy in knowing God that others don't. And maybe we, in a sense, have been guilty of taking that for granted. You know, we just kind of heard that, kind of done that, and we've forgotten, like the Israelites did, what was going on. Verse 4, God gives the promise through Malachi. He says basically that what they did will be destroyed in death, while you and I, where we can take the analogy, are going to have a home in heaven. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Sometimes we look at ourselves and we, or we look at those around us and we think, wow, you know, are the, why do the wicked prosper? You know, why is that going on? What's all this all about? And you look at Psalm 73 and that's what David is lamenting and he's in the psalmist. He's saying, what's going on? And then he realizes, wait a second, about halfway through the Psalm 73 and toward the end he says, but I've got a home in heaven. I've got a God that I know who I can dwell with forever. 
And as I mentioned to you that Edom, the reason why God would say this, they say, well, why? He, he chose Jacob, but why would he say this about Edom? Why would he be so cruel? But it isn't at all. Like I said, they'd been instrumental in the betrayal of the Jews into Babylonian hands, and that was a big deal. And they were taking delight in seeing God's people in trouble. So you say, you know, what do we do? What should the Israelites have done here? Well, they should have focused on the love of God. They should have remembered how he'd shown his faithfulness to them. But what he tells them, and he's very kind, and we're going to skip forward to it, but chapter 3, as we read. When I first take a time, just go down to verse 7. They're going to return. They're going to return to God. What is the cause of the lifelessness? What is the cause of the, of the stale made, if you like, in the relationship? What's the cause of the blockage? And God says, okay, I'm going to tell you how you correct that. And how you correct that is, is you return. And there's two fascinating things about the heart of God which tenderly urges us to return. And the first one is, God has not moved. He says, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. You know, when you take a, t- a ticket, for example, to San Francisco, you get on BART, more than likely, you get a return ticket, right? The reason you get a return ticket is, is because you're planning to come back and you know that where you started at your destination, you know it's going to be there. It's not going to float away or be gone. You get on at Arinda, it's going to be there. And so you get that return ticket. And plus, it's cheaper for that matter, I guess, probably to do that as well. His position isn't going to change. It's kind of a common sense thing. God is saying this. We can return to him and we don't have to worry because he doesn't change. He is exactly the same. If we have a sense that something's crept in in our walk with God, it's this issue. He hasn't moved. We have. We've moved away. He never changes. He stays right where he is. He's constant in his purpose for the nation. That's one thing he's bringing out here in, in this book. He's constant in his commands. He doesn't change his commands from one generation to the other. What was true in 1918 isn't true in 1949 and 1989 and 2008. God's word doesn't change. And he's consistent. He doesn't change in the fact that he is constantly pleading for his people, and maybe even you and I here today, to return to him. He keeps on saying that. Return to me. Zechariah had said those same words 50 years earlier. And you know what? God could have said, you know what? I'm done. I've said it. I said it through Zechariah 50 years ago, and I'm not saying it again. But that's not our God. He wants to continue to plead and entreat those to come to him. Doesn't that tell you something about the heart of God? That he's that persistent? Not in a dripping faucet kind of way where we come up with that connotation of that being an annoying thing, but just a persistent thing. He continues to plead with us. So God is not moved. And then secondly and lastly, God is moved. This is the irony about him. God is not heartless. Do you have a view of God today that he just somehow begrudgingly hands out pardons? You know, that for his people who want to come back to him, you know, it's sort of reluctant. He's just going to stay, you know, like this. And he's going to make you do all the coming and you're going to have to come and you're going to have to make 100% of the effort. And yet it's interesting here, isn't it? 
return to me and I will return to you. What about the parable? Parable of the prodigal son, or if you like, the loving father. Remember that? The son who in his foolishness wanted to get away from his father and go ahead and live a life of sin for a while. The father is looking. He's looking for him. And when he sees his son, he doesn't just say, you know, I'm going to just sit down here and I'm just going to wait for him to come to me. It says in the text that he, he sees him and he starts to run for him. And there's this amazing drama, if you like, where the, the son's running back and, and now the father's running and they're both coming together and they're returning to one another. And the dad is so excited about it that he even throws this big old party and there's all this joy that he has a son who has come back. Many of us, many of us have fallen, probably truth be told, many times in our Christian walk. Varying periods, hopefully not long, but varying periods where the truth uh, be really told, we would say, you know what, my spiritual temperature for you, God, right now is running pretty cool. My heart's not, my heart's not beating hot. Maybe it's lukewarm. Or maybe it's just downright cold. We shouldn't be proud of it. It shouldn't cause us to presume upon his love if we're in that state. But rather, but rather it should cause us to marvel at his love. That he unconditionally says, come back. Come back to me. And he'll refresh us and restore us. And and we'll look at in March how in chapter 3 he promises all of these wonderful things if you return to him. You see if you discover it for yourself. Abundance and protection, and you find the other two. If that's what we do, if that's where we are. In Revelation, the church of Ephesus, remember their problem. They had lost, or I should say left their very first love. And what was the remedy? John says, repent, turn, and do the things you did at first. What were the things you did at first when you first became a Christian? We were over at some friend's house the other night. And I have noticed that this man who's married longer than Cindy and I are 27 years, I think 35 years, I noticed he opens up the car door for his wife. I should probably mention this being Valentine's Day. It's a good idea, men. Don't forget this this week. But he opens up the car door for her. And I thought, that's nice. I remember there was a time I did that for Cindy. So we were over their house the other night playing uh, some games and so forth and he stood outside it was about one o'clock which is a little bit late for us late birds and he said well I see you're not going to open up the door for your wife so he went over there and he opened up the car door for her and she got in then as we went around the corner I'd forgotten my jacket so being a little bit quick here on in the wit I said okay look as soon as we go back and you I'm gonna park the car in the street step out of the car so uh, I went and got my coat, and then and she stepped out of the car, and then I opened up the door, and I said, I'm a quick learner, Gary. I learned. And he goes, do the things you did at first. Think about it in the context of those of the, you're married to. What were those things you did when you first were married that were the kind things, the loving acts for one another? Well, our relationship with God, which is a far greater relationship than any human love, that's what he wants us to do is just love him, love him in return with all our heart, and do whatever those things are we did at first. If you're aware of some kind of a blockage today, if you can really honestly say, you know what, I know what's clogging the artery for God right now. I'm aware of it. Well, then go home today and do some business. Ask God to release that blockage. Let go of it. And you'll see that heartbeat 
with the kind of passion and desire for God that you once knew. You may say, you know, it hasn't gotten as bad as the Israelites. But don't let it get as bad as the Israelites. Catch it in embryo form. Catch it while you can early before it gets to the point to where it's so tragic and many months and years have gone by where there's been lost opportunity. Let's pray. God, we're just amazed and astounded by the fact that you love us. And we are comforted by the words that Malachi said to the Israelites, I have loved you. And we can appreciate the fact that you love us and that we're a very privileged people here today. I pray that we will have hearts that will just respond to your love. And God, I pray that if today there's anyone here who has not experienced yet that love of God as one of your children, that, Lord, they will appreciate and see the fact of creation, the beauty of all around, and the fact that there is a Savior who says that he desires that no one perish and that he so wants a relationship even with them today, too. Thank you so much for your word. Pray that as we look at it over the next couple of weeks that we will have a heart and a love that's rekindled and burning for you. We ask that you'll do this, Lord, in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.